Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. You can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, including an interview with Czech Deputy Defence Minister Jan Havranek. And it's where you can sign up for live Zoom events like the one on May 26th with former US National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster. Coming up on the show today, Sean McMeekin, my colleague at Bard College and author of the new book, Stalin's War, A New History of World War II. Uh, Sean, welcome to Bookstack. Well, thank you for having me on, Richard. It's great to be here. So congratulations on the book. Uh, so why was World War II Stalin's War? Well, I suppose the title is a bit of a double or maybe even a triple entendre. Um, in, in the most simple sense, I'm simply trying to retell the story of the war from the perspective of Stalin and his foreign policy. So there is a very literal sense, I think, to the title. That is the war fought by Stalin and his armies, his war aims, his foreign policy. But obviously there is there is another angle, the one I think you're alluding to in your question, which is that I'm trying to problematize to some extent um, the Hitler and, and, and more broadly Nazi German centric view of the war, interpretation of the war, narrative of the war, uh, which has always been a, a little bit um incomplete, uh, not least in that Nazi Germany, of course, did not fight in the Asian theater, unlike the armies of Stalin and the Soviet Union. Um, also, just in the sense of the war's origins and its legacy, if you go all the way back to the Japanese incursion into Manchuria in 1931, or the way the war finally winds down in August, September 1945, um, it is actually being fought by powers other than Nazi Germany. And in fact, Stalin is at the center of events, both at the beginning and at the end, and, and to some extent also in the, in the long the long term, almost the, the long or medium durée, um, with the legacy of the war uh, regarding the expansion of communism, communist influence, communist systems of government, and of course, Soviet troops in the case of Eastern Europe and parts of Northern Asia, Soviet troops literally, literally occupying uh, many countries. So that so if, if anyone was a victor in the war or won the war in terms of territory and influence gained and the spread of an ideology and a political system, um, it was almost certainly Stalin more than Hitler. And it's one of those things that actually Russia and Russians have complained about for generations, isn't it? The Western European countries and the US have put too much emphasis on our own roles, we've downplayed the Russian ones, uh, and that the real cost in terms of lives uh, came on the Soviet side. Well, that's absolutely right. I mean, it, it is almost a, a radical reverse mirror image in the way the war is now viewed in Russia, where they, they entirely, almost entirely ignore the contribution of the Western powers, the Anglo-Saxon powers, Britain, the United States and their allies, even France. Um, that whole side of the story, uh, the story that we're usually familiar with um, from uh, the campaign in France and the Low Countries to the Battle of Britain uh, to D-Day and everything that followed it, um, is, is rather peripheral uh, to the story told in Russia, where the war really does begin on June 22nd, 1941. Um, and at least the war in Europe then uh, ends with this crushing Russian triumph with the Russians having done the vast bulk of the damage to the German Wehrmacht, inflicted uh, the vast bulk of the casualties, and also suffered, of course, the vast bulk of the casualties. So so that from the Russian perspective, uh, the Western powers were rather peripheral to the story. I, I, I like to think that the truth probably is somewhere in between. <laughs> there is a little bit of this kind of ships passing in the night effect here. Where the, the narratives have diverged so radically that to some extent 
there's very little confluence between them. But one of the other themes running through the book is that while perhaps if there's been an, an underemphasis on the role that Russia played in terms of fighting the war uh, in the West, that the West has also underplayed just how murderous uh, that Soviet ally was, specifically Stalin. Well, I think that's quite right. And uh, in Russia, too, the, the side of the story that uh, had been completely neglected, and then for a while in the 90s, people began to talk about again, and they're starting to neglect it again. The whole period of what we usually call the molotov Ribbentrop Pact um, in between August 1939 and the German invasion of the Soviet Union in June 1941, uh, Stalin invaded, of course, as many countries as Hitler did, uh, absolutely brutal methods of expropriation, mass deportations um, of prisoners of war and also just civilians into Soviet labor camps, the so-called Katyn massacre of Polish officers and other elites conducted in the spring of 1940. Uh, the Soviets used to deny responsibility for that. They finally owned up to it after the fall of communism. Now they're beginning to deny it again in a lot of books coming out in Russia. Along with it, what happens at the end of the war, of course, with the Soviet armies crashing into Europe with malice aforethought, mass deportations uh, of millions of peoples caught up or swept up in the carnage of war, prisoners of war, civilians, those sent off to Soviet labor camps. And then the story repeats itself in Northern Asia in the span of weeks in 1945, when the Soviets also take in vast numbers of prisoners and send them to work in these horrendous forced labor camps. That whole side of the war, too, has long been neglected in the West. And as you say in the book, I mean, the what you describe as the butcher's bill, the, the sheer amount of blood which is spilt uh, in this war, uh, it, there's an irony to it as well, because certainly in terms of Eastern Europe, you know, maybe the war doesn't end until 1989. In other words, that, that, Starlet, that what happens in that war really carries on right through until pretty much the end of the 20th century. Well, I think that's quite right in Eastern Europe, and that's part of the reason the war is remembered so differently there. We have this rather triumphalist narrative in many Western countries, and particularly Britain and the United States. It's the good war, the story of this triumph over the evil Hitler, um, of course, ending the Holocaust, ending all these German war crimes. It's, a, if not a happy story, it's certainly a story with a kind of a happy or at least satisfying ending or conclusion. Whereas in Eastern Europe, that's not really the way the war is remembered. Uh, the war doesn't really have a neat pat happy ending. In fact, uh, in well on into 1946 and 1947, fighting continues in places like Poland. The Soviet occupation, um, as you were indicating, actually lasts for at least about four and a half decades, and the residue or the, the lingering after effects of it are, are perhaps with us still, um, where those countries uh, have, have a much, much more checkered memory of the war, um, and where they are it's again, it's not quite as simplistic who the kind of heroes and the villains are. Many of those countries did suffer under German occupation. Many also suffered and in fact far longer under Soviet occupation. And it's and it's interesting as well. I mean, I'm in some ways I'm guilty of doing it myself here, that one of the things that you remind us about is that we so often forget Asia in all of this. But uh, as you constantly point out in the book, Stalin did not forget Asia. In fact, Asia and Europe really are two sides of the same military coin for him. 
Well, it's quite right. In many ways, the war actually fits Stalin's template or, or strategy, one might say, far better in Asia than in Europe. Uh, that is to say, one of the key themes in the book is that Stalin, and, and again, this is not necessarily unique to the communist worldview, but it has a certain tinge, I think, in, um, in the worldview of Marxism-Leninism, that there was this goal, a very clear goal, at times actually stated openly, that Stalin would prefer that the capitalist powers destroy each other. So that in Europe, the molotov ribbentrop Pact, as he knows, leads to this war between Germany, Poland, and then the Western powers. Uh, Hitler nearly ruined things, um, both by routing those Western powers so decisively and then by nearly turning the tables on Stalin with Operation Barbarossa in 1941. In Asia, the war actually fit the, the template much more perfectly. Stalin signed a neutrality pact with Japan in April 1941, which both kept um, his his eastern flank secure and, and largely safe so that effectively he could concentrate all his forces in the west against uh, the German Wehrmacht and Germany's allies. Um, and he was true to that neutrality pact really right up until he broke it literally on August 9th, 1945, to the extent when the Japanese at the end of the war, they actually tried to get of Stalin and Molotov to mediate, even after the dropping of, of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima, thinking the Soviets were still neutral, and comes in with this fell swoop, this long-prepared invasion of, of Manchuria and, and, and northern Korea and the Sakhalin Islands, various amphibious forces taking other islands. So the Soviets actually prepared really brilliantly, and they kind of held their cards close to the vest and then conducted this war of conquest in Asia that, again, is, is largely forgotten about, really, in the West today, I think in part because of the drama surrounding the dropping of the atomic bombs on Japan. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. There are, there are two things in there that, I mean, you constantly emphasise this this sense that the uh, coalition of anti-communist states in some ways is the nightmare scenario for Stalin that, as you say, he said he wanted the capitalists to have a good fight among themselves. But you also emphasise, and, and I think this seems to me to be a kind of a, a quite a revisionist view, the continuity between Lenin and Stalin in wanting to bring about global revolution, that Stalin is much more ideological than the very practical figure that he's very often presented as. Well, that's right. There is a certain view of Stalin that he had kind of... Um stripped communism of some of its ideological essence, that he had become just a kind of Russian chauvinist or nationalist, uh, that maybe the communism was just for show. Um, that is, the ideology and the rhetoric um, and the language of Marxism-Leninism was just for show. Um, now, part of the reason we now know this is, at the very least, not the whole truth, if not an actual violation of the truth, is that we have far more information about Stalin and his worldview and his contributions and his notes in the margins and the way that he thought. And he certainly did take the ideology seriously. He could be flexible. He could be patient. He didn't always necessarily rush into things. Um, but in fact, there is a great continuity uh, uh, from Lenin's foreign policy, at least in the way Lenin would describe this. And you can see it in the way Lenin plays the Western powers off of one another in 1918, for example, first signing a treaty with the Germans at Brest-Litovsk, then cutting deals with the Western allies, then going back to the Germans, and all of that really just in a span of four or five months, uh, which all kind of culminates in this, this story of, of the, the betrayal of the Western allies at Rapala, where the Bolsheviks signed a deal with the Germans in 1922. Uh, allowing the Germans to test weapons uh, on Soviet territory, to manufacture weapons, um, but also allowing the Bolsheviks to escape 
uh, from the burden of, of the debts that they owed to most Western governments. Uh, so Lenin was certainly capable of playing the same kind of dialectical game, that is, of pitting the capitalist powers off against one another. And in fact, this, this language is suffused in, in um, uh, the figures in the Soviet Foreign Office, even people like Litvinov, who was thought to be this the Soviet uh, for, uh, Commissar of Foreign Affairs, who was thought to be um, a kind of anti-fascist, who believed in collective security. If you actually read his, his, statesman, his statements closely in a year like 1938, the year of the Munich crisis, he's quite clear that the last thing the Soviets want is to be drawn into a war with Hitler, that in fact they far prefer the Western powers and Hitler to fight it out amongst themselves. They're actually quite consistent about this. And Molotov, then you might say, kind of brings this to a crescendo with the pact with Hitler, and uh, and and it's it's a quite deliberate strategy. Uh, that is, they 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 actually want for war to break out in Europe, and in fact, to some extent, there's even some evidence that they were disappointed war did not break out at Munich. Uh, that Stalin actually was expecting the war to break out in 1938 and was somewhat disappointed that it didn't do so. So it's not that he necessarily controlled and manipulated events and and foreign statesmen like a marionette, but that he did have, I think, a clear and consistent worldview. Why didn't Stalin just throw his whole lot in with Hitler and form an alliance? Well, that's a great question. That's one of the things I examine in the book is, is the period when the, the cooperation at the one hand was very broad and deep, but it also kind of reached its limits in 1940. Um, I think you could see some elements there of Stalin perhaps getting a little bit greedy, a little bit big for his britches, that things were going so well for him in the slipstream of the German military victories in 1940 that he began making ever more aggressive and onerous demands. So that when Molotov actually goes to Berlin in November 1940, the Soviets are not simply demanding that the Germans be true to the Molotov for Control Pact in its terms, but they go beyond it. So they weren't just satisfied with Bessarabia, for example, the, the kind of more coastal area of, of Romania abutting uh, Soviet Ukraine and abutting the Danube Delta. They wanted Moldavia too, which is a little bit, uh, I'm sorry, they, they wanted Bukovina too, which is a little bit further inland. Uh, they call that Moldavia SSSR, but it was actually a completely different territory, which hadn't even been uh, mentioned in the Molotov for Control Pact. He then demands the Germans withdraw their, their troops and personnel from Finland, from Romania, and he demands basing rights that the Soviets basically get to send troops into Turkey to garrison uh, the Bosporus of the Dardanelles and also to garrison troops in Bulgaria. Now, some of those were traditional Russian foreign policy interests regarding access to the Straits, and they were a little worried about maybe even the British, the Royal Navy coming in. Um, some of it, I think, was that, was that Stalin really thought his moment had come. Um, now, whether Stalin intended to break with Hitler, I'm not sure that he did, necessarily not in 1940, um, but he made perfectly clear how how onerous and aggressive his own ter terms were, and, and Hitler essentially balked at that. And I think that is basically the moment when Hitler decides to move forward with the invasion of the Soviet Union. Yes, yeah, interesting with the the invasion in June 1941. I mean, you make clear in the book that really what saves Stalin is Western money uh, and equipment, but you also make it clear that you think from a Western perspective that was a mistake. Well, I mean, uh, the first part of the question, yes. I do think that as early as the Battle of Moscow, you can begin to see signs of the importance of Western material aid. Now, it's true that a lot of the equipment took a long time to get to Russia, so that some of the pursuit planes were probably still being used in the skies over the Arctic, guarding the supply lines on the Barents Sea, as opposed to actually outside Moscow. Uh, you can actually see the arrival of uh, British and Canadian tanks, the Matilda and Valentine tanks, already seeing action in the Battle 
Battle of Moscow. A lot of the American tanks came later. The American trucks, the, the famous Jeeps, Studebakers, etc., they are already starting to arrive in time for the Battle of Moscow, where the Red Army finally turns the tide at the very least and wins a, an important morale-boosting victory against the Germans. You really begin to see it, though, in the summer of 1942 prior to Stalingrad and then even more so by 1943 prior to what the Russians call the Battle of Kursk or the Germans' Operation Citadel. Um, it's very difficult to document. I mean, the, the, the Russian archives, the Soviet military archives are quite cagey about this sort of thing. So it's difficult to document exactly how many, for example, British and American tanks or pursuit planes took place in this or that battle. But you can definitely see them being incorporated into the order of battle as early as October, November 1941. You can see the percentage uh, going way, way up in 1942 and 1943. Even in tanks, and the Soviets all, always deny they said because they had the T-34 and they had the, the KV and later Stalin tanks. They didn't need the British and American tanks. In fact, the files show that's that's not true. They actually were using them. Now, as far as whether it was a mistake, uh, you can definitely make the argument. I think from the British perspective, first of all, since Britain was already in the war and really struggling to find a way to defeat Nazi Germany alone at the time of Operation Barbarossa, you can see why Churchill was almost beside himself, almost with this feeling of deliverance and thinking, oh, I have to throw everything I, I have really, at Stalin and the Red Armies. Um, the U.S. didn't have to make that decision so well. The U.S. was still neutral, of course, for the next six months until Pearl Harbor. Um, even then, the U.S. could have attached conditions to the aid. Um, the U.S. also could have decided, let's say, after Stalingrad, for example, or after Kursk, that the immediate danger, that is, if a Soviet collapse on the Eastern Front had passed and then either curtailed or slowed down the aid. And if you read the original Lendley statutes, the way they were, they were written, it was a of course, supposed to be about military necessity. So uh, keeping the Soviets in the war, you could make a good argument that there's a kind of strategic argument, military necessity. Once the Soviets are advancing on Berlin, I think that argument uh, becomes much weaker, if not utterly counterproductive. That is to say that the Western powers in the end end up sending vast amounts of material aid and financial aid and, of course, foodstuffs and the boots and the uniforms, even industrial inputs, non-ferrous metals, aluminum, everything needed by Soviet war industry, essentially enabling that Soviet push west that NATO was later designed uh, to forestall and prevent. And it's interesting as well that in the book, you're very critical of Roosevelt. At, at one stage, I think you describe him as woolly-minded. Essentially, the argument seems to be that, that uh, Stalin completely dupes Roosevelt in terms of war strategy, that Stalin is the superior actor on the world stage. Well, I think it's it's clear simply from the evidence, the resulting evidence of the way Soviet interests were served both at Tehran and at Yalta, the post-war settlement, the spread of Soviet troops and influence. Um, I mean, the, the greatest example of this, um, some people might say, for example, well, look in Eastern Europe, there was nothing the Western powers uh, could have done to forestall the, the ultimate Red Army advance to Berlin. I disagree with that, but I'll at least grant that there's an argument. In Asia, though, what's really remarkable is that Roosevelt essentially assigns whole spheres of influence to Stalin in Northern Asia. As early as Tehran, uh, when Stalin was, of course, still studiedly neutral in the conflict, not just neutral, the Soviets were literally arresting U.S. pilots who crash-landed on Soviet soil after bombing raids on Japan. They arrested hundreds of them during the war. That's how loyal Stalin was to his neutrality pact with Japan. So at the time when Stalin is effectively doing Japan's work for it, Roosevelt assigns vast territories in Northern Asia, including much of Manchuria, over which supposedly the Asian war was being 
being fought in the first place uh, to Stalin. Um, now, as to why he did that, I, I don't entirely understand it myself. There's an argument that may, you're going to save American lives and, and shorten the war. Um, but of course, that argument doesn't really play out very well in Asia because the Soviets stay out of the war until August 1945. They, they really did virtually nothing to help, and, and they didn't actually even help until after the dropping of the first uh, bomb at Hiroshima. Uh, I think even at Tehran and Yalta, Roosevelt gave away far, far more than he needed to. And uh, the, the the question that I, I keep coming back to at, at Tehran and a lot of military strategists and armchair strategists have, have endlessly debated this. The Churchill's so-called Mediterranean underbelly strategy, it's actually more literally an Adriatic strategy. There's, there's a, a really important moment at Tehran when Churchill is trying to propose this idea, and Roosevelt briefly even goes along with it. When the Allies had half a million troops in Italy and 68 landing craft, and when the Soviet armies were still nearly a thousand kilometers from the old Reich border, they hadn't even made it as far as Crimean Odessa yet. This is at the time of Tehran in November 1943, when the Western allies could have landed troops at an Adriatic port and perhaps pushed north through the Balkans into Romania, Hungary, and maybe even Poland and Germany long before the Red Army got there. Uh, now, Roosevelt uh, cut off the idea, I think, in part because he was warned off of it by his advisor, Harry Hopkins. Um, and I do think that was an important moment, a path not taken moment. I wondered, I mean, how much of this do you think is actually very traditional diplomacy, Sean, that it's it's all about spheres of influence that, you know, Britain and the United States, they don't really care what happens in a traditional Russian sphere of influence. Eastern Europe has always been a Russian sphere of influence, and that's how they see it in, in the 1940s. I think that's an interesting point to make about Churchill in particular, because you, you could see elements of this in the things Churchill's uh, telling the war cabinet as early as November 1939 in the Baltic region, traditional Russian sphere of influence. He tells Stalin at one point at Tehran that he thinks it's natural that Russia should try to seek her warm water outlets to the south via the Black Sea and the Turkish Straits. Um, in Yugoslavia, there, there's a, a famous exchange between Churchill and Fitzroy McLean, his envoy to, to Tito, um, which in in fact, I think Fitzroy McLean was still dining out at this and kind of dinner parties and banquets on into the 1980s. Uh, that eff effectively what Churchill said to him was, well, do you plan on making Yugoslavia your home at the end of the war? And, and McLean says, no, I don't. Um, so then effectively then the upshot of that is who cares what happens to Yugoslavia? <laughs> and so there is an element, yes, of, of indifference that these, these places are not necessarily places where Britain needed to have influence or the, or the US. The so-called naughty napkin where Churchill divides up spheres of influence Apparently, Greece is important to him, and the rest, I suppose, he's he's willing to jettison, or at the very least, assign uh, majority shares to Stalin, with perhaps a little bit of a hope for a more even share in, in Yugoslavia, although I think by then that was a wish dream. Um, in the case of the U.S., I think, sure, the U.S. did not traditionally have great interests in Eastern Europe, and so, to some extent, it was just an electoral matter for Roosevelt, as he tells Stalin at Tehran. You know, he doesn't want to lose the votes of Polish Americans, so please keep it quiet, but it's fine with me if you rearrange Poland's borders. He says that more or less verbatim. Um, so that, yes, to some extent, I think that was Roosevelt's view. It wasn't really the business of the United States. Um, and uh, there's an argument to be made there, a kind of a triage, uh, almost a cynical rail politique argument. Um, but of course, it's not one that is necessarily going to be well appreciated by the people living in those territories, who, of course, were assured that this was a war for democracy or a war to, uh, to uh, carry out the principles of the Atlantic Charter. And of course, they're left with these uh, 
dictatorial governments and with with phony sham democracy and fake elections and and Soviet occupying troops they have to live with for the next four and a half decades. Um, and it's, it's it's interesting as well, isn't it? That I mean, in some ways, we've seen similar arguments in the post Cold War world. Michael Mandelbaum makes this point, for example, about NATO enlargement, the expansion of the European Union, and so on. That uh, sometimes in the West we forget that Russia has been invaded from the West in 1812, Oh, that's certainly the way the Russians saw Poland. Um, you know, much as we in the West tend to instinctively uh, sympathize, empathize with Poland and, and her tragedy, really her horrific fate in the Second World War as the, the kind of plucky first to fight. Um, obviously, from the Russian perspective, it's very different. Poland is a potential invade, invasion corridor. Poland had even, of course, invaded Russia uh, back in the days when, when Russia herself was weak. I think all that's true. And you can definitely make the argument that, let's say, um, if there were to be a, a line in the sand, you know, when Churchill, towards the end of the war, even proposes what his generals dubbed Operation Unthinkable, actually going to war to get a square deal for Poland that that perhaps was kind of beyond Britain, Britain's ken. The problem I have, though, with the, the more cynical, almost realpolitik argument here, which is that the West really, it wasn't really any business of the West who ruled Poland or Yugoslavia or any of these countries. Well, then what business was it of the West when Germany invaded those countries? I guess I, I don't entirely understand the double standard. I mean, you, you see it as early as September 1939, when Nazi Germany invades Poland from the West, and then a little more than two weeks later, 16 days later, the Soviet Union invades Poland from the east. And, you know, you could do a kind of a ledger comparative, both of the, the casualties and the deaths during the military campaigns, in which case the German invasion was obviously more bloody. Uh, but then if you look at the deportations and the executions after the invasion, well, the Soviet campaign was far more bloody and economically detrimental. And yet Britain and France declared war on behalf of, uh, I suppose, Poland, but only against Germany and not against Russia. You know, so the hypocrisy starts at the very beginning of the war. Um, and that hypocrisy, I think, carries through right to the end, where even if this argument is made, and it's made very eloquently at times by Churchill about Russian spheres of influence, of course, the Germans could have flipped right around and said, well, what about our spheres of influence? You know, after all, the Germans were simply trying to restore their old, but Churchill makes the argument uh, repeatedly about Russia simply returning to her old borders, the old borders of either Imperial Russia or perhaps some uh, phase in, in, in Soviet Russian history. And of course, that precisely is what German revisionism was about, was restoring lost borders. In some ways, Churchill, of course, is just a prisoner of his own historical memory of the First World War, uh, when Russia was on Britain's side and Germany was not. So to some extent, even setting aside all the unique crimes of the Nazis, I think Churchill is just continuing to view things in that way, where effectively Russia is an ally and Germany is not. But there's, there's a certain hypocrisy involved. And you do say at the end of the book, you you ask the question, was it worth it? Um, but you also pose a number of counterfactuals of where perhaps the West could have acted differently, whether in Finland, whether in uh, getting down, uh, getting to the negotiating table with uh, various factions in Germany and so on. 
Well, right. I mean, there are a lot of people who don't like this type of counterfactual thinking, or they think it's not necessarily the province of a historian. But of course, a war as dramatic and consequential as the Second World War, to me, it's almost impossible not to look at it and think, oh, things might have turned out differently if this or that had happened. You could begin even at the beginning, even before the war, the war breaks out with Britain's guarantee to Poland. Uh, that is Neville Chamberlain's guarantee uh, way back in March, and then it's updated in August. And, and what's interesting to me about this is that while you can clearly make the argument that, that Poland in her integrity or maybe her independence, however you want to phrase it, might have been an issue for Britain. But it's quite strange, of course, that Britain and France issue this guarantee. And then when Poland, Poland is invaded, they do very little to help her. You know, so you can go back even to that guarantee and wonder what the purpose was if they did not really intend to fight on behalf of Poland. Or the following winter, Finland, as you're talking about, where the Soviets invade Finland. And for a while, everyone forgets briefly about Nazi Germany and her crimes and her aggression, because in fact, the Soviets are the primary aggressors, of course, in Finland. And they did war game uh, bombing uh, the oil fields in Baku and the oil installations in Batumi, basically knocking out uh, something like three quarters of Soviet oil production, which would have also been a third of German oil production. Uh, and one of the things I point out there is that however realistic it might or may not have been for, the, for these bombing raids to be carried out, and they wouldn't have had to have been especially accurate. The surveillance photos taken by the British shows, in fact, they could have really just area bombed uh, some of the derricks along the Caspian and created these kind of saturation fires. Um, well, of course, had that been carried out before or Hitler invaded France and the Low Countries, uh, they wouldn't have had the oil to conduct the invasion or even to to bomb uh, Britain and, and to bomb London in the Battle of Britain, the, the Luftwaffe being fueled uh, at least about a third, maybe, uh, by Soviet sources. And yes, then Tehran, I talked about some of the past not taken there, the possibility that the Allies uh, had, had pushed on from Adriatic ports, maybe Trieste on into the Balkans. I, I also think conditions could have been applied at, at numerous points to Lend-Lease aid, um, particularly after 1942, when the Soviet situation was not as desperate, um, at the very least, uh, the United States and Britain could have begun prioritizing their own interests far more exclusively or negotiated tougher terms with Tehran or Yalta. And in the Asian War, I mean, I'm hardly the first to propose this. I mean, many of Truman's advisors, former President Hoover, the former ambassador to Japan, Joseph Grew, and many others were trying to tell Truman that, you know, had he been willing to negotiate down from unconditional surrender, Another question in Europe, of course, was the role of that, that policy in itself and maybe prolonging the war. Um, that is, any type of flexibility in negotiations, perhaps allowing Emperor Hirohito to remain on his throne, some sort of face-saving compromise, uh, short of, of course, dropping the atomic bombs or unleashing the Red Army against Japan and Asia. Uh, there are all kinds of ways in which the war in the Pacific might have played out differently, which which then in turn affected the, the course of the Chinese Civil War. Uh, just the, the aid that the U.S. sent uh, to Vladivostok and to Stalin's Far Eastern armies, 8.244 million tons of war material, including almost a million tons of, of motor and aviation gasoline, uh, which was used, of course, by the Red Army to carve out an empire in northern Asia, link up with Mao and his armies, and then supply them with fuel and weapons. I don't think there, there was a very good strategic argument for sending any of that aid. In fact, it was, it was quite strange to me that Japan didn't actually molest any of it, even though it went right through Japanese territorial waters. Japan obviously thinking it was in her own interest to allow the U.S. to waste her own resources on 
Stalin's Far Eastern armies rather than sending them to Chiang Kai-shek or using them themselves. I think there are endless what-if scenarios, and and uh, I do spin out some of them in the book. Um, you know, even if, of course, uh, eventually you get infinite regress with counterfactuals, and you know you're not quite sure uh, which. It depends on which date you go back to, I suppose, and what what the possible decisions were at that time. I wonder as well, I mean, we have a, a new American president uh, who often invites comparisons with Roosevelt. Uh, what lessons do you think there are today for the United States in dealing with President Putin of Russia, but also a rising power like China? Well, it's quite interesting, of course. I mean, a lot of people would make the almost obvious connection to Russia, Russian influence operations. I think in terms of the, of the scale of them, actually, the better analogy in recent years is to China. I mean, we've, we've learned about uh, all of the links that China has to academic institutions in the West, of course, to members of Congress, and, and frankly, to the president and his own family, his own son. So that I think whether it's the president or whether it's those advising the president, I think they, they should certainly be wary of trying to disentangle and disaggregate genuine U.S. interests from the interests of other powers who might be trying to push or pull us in a certain direction. Uh, in many ways, of course, we're far more economically intertwined with China than we ever were with the Soviet Union. Um, but it is interesting to me that the comparison with Russia, I think that the one place where that breaks down, that is the current Russian influence versus Russian influence in the 40s, is that I think part of the reason um, Soviet influence operations or simply diplomacy was so effective vis-a-vis -vis Washington in the 1940s is because certainly after Barbarossa and even to some extent before, there was just a huge swath of public opinion which sympathized with the Soviet Union, uh, with the Red Army, with the Soviet cause. And so I think it would have been a little bit hard for critics uh, to push back against that tide. I don't think that's necessarily the case today. Or even though there's a lot of evidence of Chinese influence operations in Washington and in American higher education, there's pushback already. I think people are wary of it. It's kind of on their radar. Um, and I do think it's something we should be particularly wary of, whether it's dealing with something like the pandemic or perhaps an issue such as Taiwan or, of course, Russian actions in, in Ukraine. There may be limits. You're talking about spheres of influence. There may be limits to what the U.S. can do. I do think in the end what policymakers need to do above all is to simply think hard about what the real national interest is and make sure that it is somehow disentangled with the interests of whatever power it is that we seem to be currently entangled with. And I think in the current case, that's probably China far more than Russia. So the book is Stalin's War, A New History of World War II. It's written by my guest, Sean McMeekin, and published by Basic Books. But for now, Sean, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thanks for having me, Richard. It, it was great fun. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damir Marusik. We'll be back in two weeks' time after the Memorial Day weekend. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. 